romance is probably the fastest to change. It's the most reactive, I think, of all, all the genres. One, because we write so fast. <laughs> we as a collective, I myself do not write that fast, but people will speak negatively about writing to market, but it's not so cut and dry. It's a conversation, like a romance as a genre is more of a conversation because it moves so fast and so fluidly and so many people do it. It's hard to put your finger on it because it's, you know, again, that giant nebulous ball. Of- that was the voice of Jeannie Lynn. Welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. Jeannie Lynn is an amazing romance author, and we were really excited to talk to her as a trailblazer for what we consider, you know, historical romance um, often gets really pigeonholed into being like 19th century European. And obviously we... I don't know when this is airing. We will be talking to some other romance authors who were uh, blazing trails in different ways. But we were really excited to talk to Jeannie because she opened up the door to historical romance set in Asia, but not during the 19th century. So her first book, Butterfly Swords, is, and many of her books were set during Tang Dynasty China, which is around like 7800 AD. Um, we asked her some questions about why she was interested in that time period. Um, and talk about how, like, once somebody kind of goes down an interesting path, other folks can figure, you know, uh, and readers love it. Um, other authors can see a path for themselves. Um, she is a really fun, engaging. She has great it's stories. Great, great interview. We, um, it's a great interview, and we think that you are going to really enjoy hearing Jeannie's path romance. Romance. One thing that I just that didn't come up in the conversation, and I want to just say before we start, is that um, as much as we love Butterfly Swords and have talked about it on multiple interstitials, we put a Hidden Moon, the most recent in her Lotus Palace series, on the 2020 Best of the Year list from Theta Mates. So we're renowned, devout Jeannie Lynn fans, Jeannie Lynn fans here uh, at Theta Mates, and we can't wait for you to spend a little time with her. It was a real delight. Jeannie, welcome. We're so excited to have you. I'm really excited to be here. I've been listening, and so this is like kind of a geeky girl fan moment for me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, we're it's sort of a geeky girl fan moment for us because I was thinking that, I mean, I think the first time we talked about a Jeannie Lynn book on Fate of Mates was like the third or fourth interstitial when we did road trips, right? Road trips, Yes. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so. I've never heard one where you mentioned me, so I think that's, you know, <laughs> that's probably lucky. Maybe that's best. I feel like I can't listen to podcasts where people talk about my books, so, you know. Yeah, I never, better I always, to just, no, we, we said nice things, but you we, don't have to, you know. Exactly. I mean, we usually, we almost exclusively say nice things. We don't recommend yeah. books that we don't love. So. I actually had a funny moment when um, a person from my real life a person from my real life was like, oh, do you listen to Faded Mates? Because they mentioned you. And I was like, I do listen, but not, you know, I never heard <laughs> I myself mention. <laughs> well, now we're really going to mention you because you're joining us as one of our trailblazers for the season. And we are so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So one of the reasons that we were really interested in talking to you is because we, you know, we're always looking for people who are, like, doing things that are, like, new and different. And, you know, we've talked to people that have been around in romance for a long time. But in 2010, when you published Butterfly Swords, it although there had been a book by Jade Lee that had a 
Chinese heroine, which was set in Shanghai, but in the 19th century. But we're really interested in talking to you because you're so, did I think, blew off the doors of historical romance by choosing a different time and place than sort of that regular, like, you know, like what I think a lot of readers had been taught to to understand about historical romance, which is it's white characters in London in, you know, the 19th century. Right. So People didn't fall in love before 1800. <laughs> Never. <laughs> That's just like a little backstory maybe for our audience, but we'd love to hear you about your path kind of to through romance and in writing those books. Yeah, and it's it's really good that you mentioned Jade Lee because I, I was a fan of that series before I ever thought of ever writing um, a romance at all. And uh, I actually found Jade Lee because I was on a road trip and, you know, this was paper book. The time yes. of paper books, right? <laughs> I was on a road trip and I, I stopped in some, you know, it was, uh, I, I visit bookstores <laughs> when I go on road trips. I stopped in a bookstore and I found her book and I was amazed. You know, I had only read the romances that, you know, I had been introduced to by my best friend and her mom. And I was like, oh my gosh, you, there are romances set in China, you know, and the, the, most of the books were one Caucasian character mm-hmm. and then one Asian character, you know, one Chinese right. character. And then there was actually one book in the series. I'm going to, I'm, stop me. I'm going to geek out too much. So I'll, I'll no, not say No, that's why you're much, here. There was, one of us. There was one, 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 <laughs> one book in the series where it was uh, Chinese and uh, both, both characters. So it, it was, you know, a Chinese couple. Um, but it was set in, in Shanghai, like you said, and I was just amazed and and just, I don't know, thrilled to kind of see something, you know, different. And uh, But on top of that, I also was a big historical romance reader from, you know, the 90s era where I think there were a lot more settings. Like it was sort of the, um, you know, quote unquote exotic yes. settings were, were more popular then. So it was the idea of like, oh, historical romances will whisk you away into a different setting, um, Vikings and Russia. And, you know, I know that those are, you know, European settings still, but still a little bit more exotic. And I felt that, you know, that's where I kind of got my roots of romance reading is is in that era of historical romance. And so I always wanted to be wished away. I wanted to travel somewhere when I read. And, um, you know, and, and that's when I think I almost feel like in some ways, my romances are a throwback, even though people are saying like, oh, it's new. You know, nothing, nothing's new, right? What's old is new again kind of thing. Um, but that was where I was coming from as a fan of the historical romance genre and a fan specifically of, of Jade Lee. And uh, so at one point, I was, t- I, was uh, I was teaching high school at the time. And teaching high school is probably one of the most emotionally... <laughs> Uh, I teach middle or, school, so I know what you're yeah. talking about. Right? So it's like it, it, you're so committed. Your head is always teaching. You're always with your students, even when you're not there, even when you're not grading. And uh, there was one point when I was, you know, working the summer to prepare for a whole new program um, for at-risk, you know, or our, I, I taught in, a, in South Central. So it was, you know, high-risk and, and you know, low-performing schools, urban. And so... On the second day of school, on the second day of school, when starting this program, all of a sudden I I broke down afterwards and I cried. I was like so tired. I was so done. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's day two. Usually yeah. I get you know, a couple months in before I cry. And um, 
I was really, I was like, I can't do this. This is the beginning of the school year. And my friend was like, you need to do something for you. I had spent the whole summer teaching and preparing for this, this small school. And, and she was like, you got, you got to do something for you. And that's when I was like, well, you know, I've always wanted to write, you know, I've always wanted to write and I've always, um, you know, I, you write in your notebook all, you know, all throughout my high school years and things like that. I would write little stories that I never intended to show anybody. I showed it to my little sister. Um, and that's about it. And then, so I was like, okay, okay. That's the one thing I want to do while I'll, I'll, I'll try doing that. So I looked for classes on, because that's me. If you want to learn how to yeah. do something, it's like, oh, I have a class on it. I'm such a student. That's, well, that's the teacher thing, right? I mean, yeah. 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 Uh, I, I laugh because there was a time when I, I couldn't, I, I was very nervous speaking. So I went to the library and looked up like how to public speak. <laughs> that's how I do things. So I, I looked up how to write romance and there was a UCLA extension class taught by oh. Barbara Ancrum. Oh my Cool. And I was, uh, I was like, okay, okay, this is, this sounds really great. You can take it at night, right? So I could take it at night after, right. <laughs> after teaching all day. Um, and then I, uh, I hadn't read her before. So my sister, who was actually in an MFA program, my sister was much more on the path of becoming a, a, a professional writer, a bona fide writer way before me. And then she's like, well, read one of her books, see if you trust her, like, you know, see if you can trust her. And I, I went to the library, I went to the bookstore, I found, you know, a couple of Barbara Anglin books and I was reading them. And I was like, oh my gosh, I I was crying. I love the books that like make you feel that hitch in your chest and you're like rings you out like I read romance to actually cry. I <laughs> so good. Um and she gave me that feeling like I just like all oh, the the te- the tension, the emotional tension was so good. So I was like, okay, I think this is who I want to learn from. But I was telling my sister, I was like, I don't think I will ever write emotional tension this well because, you know, I had done these fun little fantasy writings and that was my thing is I I didn't feel like my characters were gripping the way Barbara's characters were gripping. And my sister told me something that would still sticks with me. She said, that's not her first draft. So I was like, oh, that's such a good piece of advice. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Just to give you an idea about how... Gosh, that's transformational, that moment. <laughs> ...further advanced my sister was and how a, a green writer I was. Because I was like, you write something once for fun and you just leave it. And you never come back yeah. to it. And it's in your notebook, you know. And, you know, I just thought good writers stumbled upon it or were talented or just, you know, they had something that I didn't, right? Um, but I was like, oh, funny that, you know. And so I... <laughs> I took this class, and again, never intending to ever show this book to anyone. I, I took the class just for fun, right? Mm-hmm. Because I was like, sure, dying so stressed in, out at work, you know. right? And as I was taking it, uh, well, right before I took it, my my former brother in law, um, her 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 then fiance, he he was also in an MFA program, and he he said, "Let me give you some advice." And again, I'm totally green. He's like, "Think about what you want to write." Because you're going to go in there, and then the, the first day, they're going to say, what do you want to write? And they're going to go around the room, and everyone's going to say what they're working on, and then you're not going to have any idea, and you're going to freak out. And that's why I ended up writing about nuns for the last, you know, two years. <laughs> and I was first like, thing okay. that came to his mind. Sure. Nuns. <laughs> nuns. Well, he went to Catholic school, so he's like, oh, nuns. And then, so I was like, okay, okay. And again, I'm hearing this totally green. And I think I'm like, I, I'll think of some ideas. I'll think of some ideas. And I go to the class and of course, first day, what are you writing? And I was like, oh my gosh, he was right. 
And so I was like, oh, I have this idea, you know, it's kind of a fantasy romance because I'd only written fantasy and it's, you know, like Western romance and Eastern romance, like kind of an East meets West, these like warriors, white warriors go to an Asian, you know, Chinese based, uh, you know, land and they they meet a princess, they get involved in a war. And I'm I'm talking through all this and I'm sure everyone in that that class was like, this kid, this is the <laughs> kitchen sink, you know, on oh, their sword fights, you know? And so I'm, I'm saying this and, and uh, you know, and they, they didn't laugh at me. They were very welcoming. And um, I also said in that same class, oh, I just started reading Nora Roberts. She's pretty good. And yeah, so I'm sure at that point, the <laughs> class was like, this kid. Um, and, but I stuck with it. And from that class, I, I met some people who wanted to continue after the class and so we started meeting with Barbara as sort of a mentorship. Um, it was a guided critique. So we were still, you know, she she was still a teacher, you know, guided mentor to us uh, for the next year. And that was really what started me on the path That's of wanting amazing. to get serious with this. How many other people, so were you all, you were all writing romance at the same time? All, you were all romance writers. Yes, yes. Cause, so it was specifically a romance class because I knew, you know, when I said I wanted to write, I was like, I want to write romance. That's what I read. That's yeah, what I love, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we were all uh, pre-published, I guess, or unpublished. And, and, and you know, at various levels, me probably being the most green, as in I had just discovered Nora Roberts. Even though I had read romance <laughs> for years, I just like... Sure. Everyone has friends. that that author they've just never. <laughs> My endured. best friend's mom didn't read Nora Roberts. You know, she was a Gina <laughs> Krenz, like you know, right. Joanna Lindsay, but right. there was no Nora Roberts. So I go into this room like I've discovered this author. <laughs> Oh my God, that's amazing. I love so, it. I want to talk about this group of people. Did you stick, are you still, did, did you stay with them for many years or was it just the year? Just a year. Um, and they were just, they were my, they, most of them went to my wedding. You know, we were really close, yeah. um, but I, I ended up moving a couple years after that. So before I was published, um, I, I moved away, so, but at the time, you know, and one of them has passed away. You know, we we kind of went through life, you know, things together. And we've drifted apart. I still keep in touch definitely with Barbara, though. Um, you know, she is, she's just still, I still consider her like the, the, the I learned everything I needed to know kind of thing. Well, no, that's not true because I keep on learning, but I, I she really set me on the path. So when you, the reason why I asked about them is because I'm really curious always about the way that we build our communities as writers. Um, And so I'm curious as you move, when you moved, as your career has moved, um, are there, do you have a new community? Is, do you feel like there are people who you, um, who helped you along the way in really powerful ways aside from Barbara or in addition to Barbara? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing I did when I moved to St. Louis was I, I found, you know, the local, um, the local romance writing group. And I actually knew some people from online on there mm-hmm. already, you know, as Celia Carson. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, my little circle is still the same circle I formed right when I moved. It's uh, Celia Carson and Chantel Madison, Amanda Berry, you know, um, Bria Quinlan. You know, so it's like the, those people have really... There's like, you know, some people I interact with more online, but, you know, there's that close core group and they just kind of get me through. Sometimes they get me through the day. (laughs) Um, Sometimes they get me through the book. Sometimes they get me through, you know, the whole the whole year of, you know, you have newborn children and and you have a book that's due and, you know, that's rough. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, that that's really, I don't think I could write alone. I've, I've always been, you know, I, I need a group um, of people and, and we, we keep each other, even, you know, we all write different things, but we, we keep each other going. You know, right. sometimes it's at the level of critique, but sometimes it's just at the level of emotional support in the sounding board. It is such a lonely job for a lot of people. I mean, I know some people like it just to sit alone in their, in their room, but <laughs> so community becomes so vital. So was that first book that you're talking about, the, the book that you started, that ultimately became Butterfly Swords? Yeah. The, well, that first, the first, there's the unpublished prequel of which I've never been able to, to you know, one day I'll, I'll get it somewhere and just, you know. Um, but yeah, that, there was a, the first book. And then I took a long time, took over, I think almost two years to finally finish that first book. And it had all those great things I talked about, you know, the sword fights and the princesses. And, um, but then at some point I made a decision. I was like, okay, I'm, I don't have to make it fantasy. I'll make it China. I'll make it Tang Dynasty China, which is what I was basing my fantasy world on. And I'll, I'll just keep on going from there because, you know, Joanna Lindsay would, she always had like, oh, there's this imaginary European country, you know? Sure, why so not? I was like, I was like, okay, so these guys come from an imaginary European country that made it to China and um, I'm just going to go with it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had no idea. Listen, yeah, I, I love that. Knew, I love that. I knew nothing. Well, no, and then, you did, but you knew so much because you were a romance reader. I think that's the thing is the conventions are so different for us. Yeah, I would say the secret to, uh, quote unquote, success, the secret to actually getting this to work was um, having no clue. And because <laughs> having no clue, I had no fear. Yes. Like, I, I just, let's just do it. Yeah. Why not? Um, and then so that first book, yeah, I cobbled it together. But at the end, there was actually a story there. I, I was amazed. I was like, okay, it's not great, but there's a story. I didn't know it wasn't great either, by the way. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, uh, no. But then, you know, I, I, and by then I had been reading advice from other places. I had finally joined RWA and uh, Jessica Faust said, you know, you finish your first book, start querying it and then start your second book. Like, why are you, why are you just waiting? So right. I'm like, okay, I was querying that first book and I just started that second book. And so uh, that second book is what Butterfly Swords was. And uh, it was just uh, being in that group, as soon as we all started our second books, I was amazed because I couldn't tell that my writing had changed that much. But like seeing everybody else's writing, I was like, oh my gosh, it's all of a sudden like from book one, the end to starting book two, everyone grew so much. I can feel it. I can hear it. I can see it. And I was hoping the same was true of my book because I couldn't see it in me. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, that, that, Butterfly Swords was always a book too. And I think if you read it, you'll see there's some characters and things in a backstory that was supposed to already be established. I have a question just about how you decided to write um, about the Tang Dynasty. Was that just of personal interest to you? Or so you were like happy to be researching or, <laughs> right? Because it's such a specific, you know, I mean, any number of dynasties you could have chosen in during Chinese history. Well, the Tang Dynasty is one where women, um, and again, this is, relatively speaking, women had a measure of independence. Um, Women reached high levels of government. There was an empress during a small portion of the time, you know, who, who, uh, not an empress, she actually became emperor. She was considered the emperor, uh, Empress Wu. And so uh, on top of that, just even at the lower levels, you know, women could seek divorce. Women could sue for property. You know, Mm -hmm. there were some basic things there. Um, Overall, women's rights 
they were definitely a, a lower class, but even those little points would give uh, women a little bit more agency. So I was always attracted to that period. If you're a fan of Chinese history, it's one of um, one of the golden, you know, one of the periods that's the, it's the golden, a golden mm-hmm. era. Um, so that was another thing that drew me to it. And then, you know, as any historical fan will tell you, the clothes <laughs> were really, really nice. <laughs> The That's clothes awesome. and the hair and everything were really uh, the aesthetic. The the Tang yeah. Dynasty aesthetic is really um, attractive too, and so the, all those things. Um, I I didn't do a lot of research until I kind of like okay, now I've made a decision. This is not historical fan or this is not fantasy romance. This is going to be historical romance. Um, and I started researching a lot. Uh, I'm reading everything and, and, you know, joining historical groups and just starting to absorb as much as I could to start to world build. This episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by The Steam Box. The Steam Box is a romance book subscription service that features books written by authors from marginalized communities and underrepresented groups. Books are paired with items that celebrate self-love and embrace one's individual sexuality. Sarah, I could not be more thrilled about this. Listen, I could get hard behind one of these boxes. I think, as a matter of fact, old school romance readers like us remember the joy of getting romance novels in the mail every month, but now they come with vibrators. Look, that's how you know you are evolving in the right direction. Absolutely. This is a really cool company. Um, The founder's name is Melissa Gill, and she donates 5% of each box's profits to an organization. In the first year of business, the Steam Box donated to Lilith Fund, Families Belonging Together, the National Network to End Domestic Violence, and Trans Women of Color Collective. So you can know that when you subscribe to Steam Box, you're doing well, as well as reading well, and maybe feeling well. I was lurking on the Steam Boxes Instagram feed this morning, and the Winter Box, aside from having a bunch of great books in it, also had a face mask and a candle and soaps and a vibrator in the shape of a rosebud so you could, you know, get it done beautifully. Amazing. So you should all check out the Steam Box and support this small business. You can find her website at www.steamylit.com. That's S-T-A-M-Y-L-I-T dot com. As always, you can find more information in show notes about the Steam Box, or if you're using a smart podcasting app, you can click the link uh, right in the app right now. And for Faded Mates listeners only, using the code FADEDMATES will get you 10% off your subscription. Thanks to the Steam Box for sponsoring the episode. Were you querying that first book and then the second book w- became Butterfly Swords? Or, or, you know, at what point did were you were you aware of, you know, this is happening. We're publishing this <laughs> beast. <laughs> well, I um I set a limit. Um I set a limit. I said, okay, uh, because also all these blogs were saying people make the mistake of querying their first book too long or something like that. So my first book, very quickly, I was like, okay, 10. 10 rejections and it's not going like I know I, I could feel it. it's not going anywhere you know so I, I just kept on this, writing this feels very this is very me I, you hear those <laughs> stories about like 
you know, people query their books for 40 times and then finally get an editor. I'm like, I would just be done. I would be yeah. watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. But I, I, I set a limit, uh, but I set a limit of 100. I said 100 oh. injections. And no, that was for Butterfly Swords. For the first book, I was like 10 and, and I know. I don't okay. need to hang okay. on. But for the second one, I was like, okay, 100 rejections. And I think I might have gotten, I might have pulled that number because I'm. you can probably already tell. I'm very much like, I need definitive limits. I need numbers. Otherwise, I will just... I don't know how, how much is enough. I, you know, um, and so I said a hundred, and I probably pulled it because an author I liked said something like that, right? And so I was like, okay, I'm one hundred. Um, and then I finished the book, and this book finished in two months. Like, unlike well, oh, rough rough amazing. draft, amazing. But still, let's say rough draft, it wrote different. Yeah, yeah. It's so like two years versus two months because I just had like. I knew, like, I, I knew the answers to all the questions I had before. And plus, I had learned from Barbara that just write forward, like, instead of, like, right. getting in your feelings or getting in your head and worrying. And I was like, can I just assume all the perfect edits have been made? And she's like, assume all the perfect edits have been made and just write forward. Mm-hmm. And I had never done that before. And so I was like, okay. Uh, if a teacher tells me something, I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm such that. a good student. Yeah. Um. And then so I finished it, it took a long, took a lot longer than two months to edit it and everything. But when I was querying it, um, I gave myself 100 and I was, I would track it. And there was a bunch of us, Bria Quinlan was one of those, you know, we were like querying our books at the same time. And you're like, compare, you know, you're like, oh, I got a rejection today. I got a rejection today. And, you know, I got a rejection on my birthday. You know, like you, you kind of get to the point where you like the pain. You're like, it hurts. <laughs> But I, I kind of felt left out on days when I didn't get a rejection after a while. I'm like, no rejections today. <laughs> um, but you kind of get used to it. And you're in that grind. And I didn't, Yeah, you know, I was laughing when I said 100. Right? I didn't realize how close I would get. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and what then, kind of rejections did they look like? What for, Were form, they thoughtful the most or part, just forms? Form, form yeah. for the most part. A couple of them said, you know, a couple of them were requests that said I didn't like it as much. And I would tweak it along the way. And I was still trying to learn and trying to find the secret magic sauce to, like, figure it out. And then at, uh, you know, at one point I finally, um, I entered the Golden Heart. So let's explain what the Golden Heart is. Oh, the, yes. Prior to um, – the, the Golden Heart no longer exists, but for a long time, yeah. RWA, the Romance Writers of America, um, had an unpublished author contest called the Golden Heart. And you would submit a, a selection, a first 50 or first 100 pages, and, um, and it was judged by published authors. And the winners of the Golden Heart, you know, were hopefully noticed by agents. That was the idea. Well, and this was especially important back before people could self-publish on Amazon. So mm-hmm. it was really an avenue for, I don't know, like that that sense of like, yes, this is someone we, other romance writers see the potential in these authors. And you, and now, I mean, it was, it was a thing where, you know, Joanna Shoup won the Golden Heart, Robin Lovett won the Golden Heart. I mean, there are, there are people who we have talked about on Faded Mates, Jeannie, yeah. I didn't know you won the Golden Heart, but. <laughs> well, and, and, and yeah, yeah. So uh, for me, like first, it's not the only avenue to publication, no. but for my book, which was so much of an oddball, you know, people didn't know what to do with it. I entered the Golden Heart. And I had been entering a gazillion contests up to then because I wanted feedback. I was kind of a mm-hmm. feedback junkie. I, I, I <laughs> you know, I need that feedback. Otherwise, I, like, again, boundaries. I don't know how to look with my own, you know, instincts. <laughs> And know what to do. And so um, I entered the Golden Heart and uh, I, I finaled. 
in the Golden Heart. And I think that was the start where people started saying, hey, maybe, you know, I'll give it a chance. I started getting requests um, and I started, you know, more people were taking a look. Like I definitely noticed there was a line in the sand. As soon as the Golden Heart nominations came out, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden people started paying attention. And um, it it was just this huge boost. And I think I've calculated at some point, but from the Golden Heart nominations to my publication, it was a matter or or my first contract, it was a matter of months. So it was, it was that, it was that thing of like, you're slogging along for like year, two years, three years. It was three years before, you know, um, I had started the next book already, (laughs) you know, the dragon and the pearl. And then the Golden Heart nominations came in and then everyone was requesting, the editors who were judging the Golden Heart were requesting um, an agent, you know, agents started asking to see things. Um, I, I got my agent shortly after the Golden Heart nomination before the Golden Heart ceremony. Um, and it ended up winning the Golden Heart. I think if it was just nominated, that would have been enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended up winning. And at that point, the weekend of the win, right? The we- the weekend of the the conference when the wins were announced. That weekend, everybody had rejected me. Like all the editors, all the houses who had um, requested were like, no, just can't. At least they tried. My agent, she told me, she was like, I'm going to send it to all these houses. I'm going to send it to Avon. Avon says they don't even publish what you write because Avon's. Oh, see. I want to say something about this. Right now with the diversity push, everyone's updated their guidelines. And I say, even if it's lip service, it's important because before the words said no. Avon was specifically um, England after, you know, a a certain period, right? The Regency period or yeah, 19th century England or 19th century Europe. I think it was even specifically England for Avon because everyone wanted, you know, Avon. Um, but she was like, they say they don't even publish this, but, you know, they've got to, they're going to make an exception someday and you should be that exception. Like that was what my agent, Gail Fortune, that, that was what she was like. She believed it. You know, she believed in me more than I believed in me at that point. Um, but everyone, everyone had said, no, just not going to, you know, they just couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. So I was feeling kind of low. Um, but on the drive, like I got out of the airplane and I got a call and, and, Harlequin was interested. Um, Mills and Boone specifically. Harlequin Mills and Boone was interesting, interested, and and you know that's what we went with because everyone else had said no. Um, and I never thought. I just really never thought. And she never thought either. They actually picked it up from the Golden Heart contest. She didn't submit to Harlequin because we didn't think that this was going to fit a category romance at all. Length. It was a little long. Uh, length or subject matter. I mean, it is interesting because when you bring up Harlequin, Harlequin, for all that we talk about the categories being so rigid and having such rigid rules, often it is in the historicals. It's the place where um, these more unusual or unique historicals. And I didn't know that until I didn't know that until, you know, I I started working with Mills and Boone and you know, and Harlequin has such a machine that I think they could they could afford to, you know, publish two Regency romances, one Scottish and one Chinese romance, you know, right. that month. And they, you know, the cycle of every month, you know, so they actually had the ability to be a little bit, um, you know, take a risk. And they did. And kind of interesting is I didn't realize that then the editor who did acquire me, I was her first book. So she might have also been. Oh, wow. 
young and green and new and and um and a boatman hungry yeah yeah hungry and and maybe she she also maybe maybe also didn't needed know the rules a, right yeah maybe it needed a bunch of people who were just like you know what let's do it <laughs> i don't know any better let's just go for it <laughs> You know, it's one of the things that we talk about and we've heard it over and over and over again on Faded Mates is um, that that there is so much luck in in it. You know, it's hard work and it's having a good a good book and it's, you know, keeping at at it and not giving up. But it's also falling into the lap of the right person, um, which is tough to wrap your head around, I think, um, when you have the other stuff. Yeah. And, and like I said, I think, I think I, I, Gail, you know, Gail being attracted to that book, she, she actually had, she was an editor with Berkeley and she actually loved um, Chinese history. Like who knew, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was just, it just kind of hit the right people along the way to make it. And, and, you know, looking back, you're like, yeah, it could have missed at any point, Um, but it just got lucky and, and happened to, to hit the right, you know buttons with the right people. So is there something about butterfly sores like that book that you can pull through all of your because now of course you you are right beyond romance, you write other all you know, in other genres, you you've been you've been around for <laughs> a decade, which feels like fifty years in romance. Um are you able to pinpoint the thing about a Jeannie Lynn book? What what is a Jeannie Lynn book? What does it bring to the reader? I I don't I don't I'm, I'd like to hear from readers about this, but I, I have a feeling I have a feeling in my head um, what what pulls through, and there's I'm I'm pausing for a bit because there's sort of like this this kind of double edged sword. Um, I think I really get deep into kind of the characters. Uh, head right and I, I know that's not something readers are like I read this book because it's deep in the character's head that's not why readers read a book they can like <laughs> feel it and sense it but that's not what they're saying right so I know that there are trademarks that readers recognize but for me I really kind of dig into the whys um, probably the same way I dig into my own head very like self-reflective of the characters why they do things and, and such so it kind of um I like to think goes into unexpected ways with the characters, right? So I think that's one of, one of the things that um, the characters will take unexpected twists. And I think that the reason why I say it's an, a double-edged sword is I think there are some recognized ways, recognized, beloved heroes. You know, my heroes are not the standard hero um, because I think, I, I think the standard alpha hero has some cultural issues in, in Eastern or Chinese romance. And actually I've read papers about this, you know, where at one point the scholars, you know, the scholars who are like physically leaner, not like the big burly bearded um, characters, they were considered more romantic figures. And it was because of just the threat, the physical threat of these big burly characters, um, invaders, conquerors, you know, things like that. So it was like, oh, these big warriors were kind of identified with like the conquering forces and these scholars were considered like the native forces of, of Han culture. Uh, this, okay, so what makes a, a Jeannie Lin book is probably way more research than ever gets on the page, I guess, uh, for me, for me, a lot of this in-depth research that I try to weave in. But I think what makes a Jeannie Lin book for readers is, um, you know, the settings and then 
the very um, kind of slow burn emotional. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think I've said like no one writes kissing like you do. Like, right. Like so good (laughs) where you are just really like, it's like, Oh, it's so lush. Right. And you just really feel like the way that the characters are experiencing this, it's so tactile, but it's like so emotional. And so, yeah, the idea that like, we're so deep in their heads is so like, that feels so exactly right to me. Yeah. And, I mean, my, my inspiration was um, epic Chinese dramas, sea dramas. And if you look, you know, the if you've seen Shang, Shang-Chi, which is not an epic, it, it lends a it's lot epic. from that. <laughs> Shang-Chi, um, you know, Tony Leung in there, and you, people talk about his eyes, and he just has that, like, oh, that look. You know, he, he is my, I, I've actually based heroes off of his characters. Um, that look, you know, when you're in a Chinese drama, those extreme close-ups and those little nuances and those, like, looks and the, sli- the slight touches are such a big deal because um, in that in that genre, you can't just outright, like, you know, physical affection and things like that. Especially in historical, it's something that there's these boundaries. And that's why I like historical romances, because those, there's these boundaries. You have to, like, show attraction in interesting ways, Um you know, everybody loves the the Pride and Prejudice, you know, um, the hand, right? The, mm-hmm. he, oh, yeah, he, right. He, he lets go of her hand <laughs> and you see the close-up of him, like, kind of, the touch is still, the touch is still there in his fingers, <laughs> even though her hand is no longer. Um, a lot of that in, in Chinese drama, and I try to recreate that in my books. And I try to recreate the look that lush look of Chinese dramas and that sort of emotional tension of like, I want to, but I can't. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> great. I mean, yeah. Hit the, uh, yeah, the eyes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> One. Okay. Can I ask a question? Cause I'm really, I'm also a teacher. Did writing change your teaching? That's a good mm-hmm. question. I think it's all one cycle of teaching and learning for me. And that includes in my professional life, um, you know, and uh, regardless of whether I was teaching or whether I was, you know, developing program, I'm also, I kind of, I seem to through my life switch between teaching and then programming and then going back to teaching. And right now I'm in, I'm in both. I'm actually teaching computer programming. Um, it's always a cycle of learning and, and, and such. And I think that writing I fell into that with writing too. It's just a constant cycle of learning. And then I, you know, I, I present craft writing, craft workshops and such at the same time I'm taking classes and and learning. Um, So I think that's how it fed in. Is it really, it, it, the introspection, you know, I think as a writer, you become even more introspective and reflective of your, of how your books are, you know, coming out, how, what you're putting into your books. Um, and it's it is also an act of um, I think teaching. Teaching is also a very introspective art. I think you know, and you beat yourself up the same way, and you find your ways to lift up in the same way. And so, it did. You know, I specifically started writing because I needed some sort of um, net. I needed something to to save me from myself. You know, uh, when I was just getting so absorbed in the teaching that I was hurting myself. Um, and, and of course, no, no use to any of my colleagues or my students if I was in that state. So in that way, I, that's why I wanted to say it was the whole cycle of introspection and everything, I think, that, that affected the teaching. I don't know if it, and, you know, I think 
in a Zen sort of way that has to affect the way you actually present or the way you actually treat people. But, um, and I can't separate it out, but I would say, okay, the short answer is yes. (laughs) I did a lot of research about something called pedagogical content knowledge, which is basically like content knowledge is like, I mean, everybody knows how to like divide, like do long division, right? Pedagogy is how you teach it. But like what Mm -hmm. people don't understand about teaching is like, everything you do becomes filtered through like your teaching brain and like everything I see all day. I'm like, could I use this in the classroom? Could I use this in the classroom? And so when you were talking earlier about like everything became about like the classroom, (laughs) it seems that like, it's so permeable. I don't think people understand that like it, 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 that cycle of teaching and learning that you're describing is so real. Right. Even if it's romance novels, like it doesn't matter what you're doing in the classroom. It still becomes a big part of like, how do I learn? How do I teach? Right. And I actually feel that the the act of teaching, like basically after teaching high school, after teaching high school and Watts, I felt like I feared nothing. Like I, I felt like if if you want to reject me, that's not the worst thing. <laughs> I, was say, an I can do anything. Is right. It's like that's just Facing like a 25, a, a bare, 16 year old. Barely a you know, barely a flesh wound. Um, I I felt like I I had no fear. This episode of Fade and Mates is sponsored by Chirp, the best audio discounts. If you are an audiobook listener, and I know a lot of you are, and I am, I really cannot recommend Chirp enough. They have amazing featured deals on audiobooks, sometimes up to 95% off of list price. So for example, right now, you can check out The Madness of Lord Ian McKenzie by Jennifer Ashley, a romance we just uh, recommended back in season one for only $2. And Jenny McQuiston's What Happened in Scotland, if you were intrigued by it last week on the Waking Up Married episode. You can get it now at Chirp for $2.99. And the best part about it is that you do not need a subscription. You can just buy a book when you like the price. To get your first Chirp audiobook, head to chirp.fatedmates.net where uh, you'll find all of the romance books on Chirp right there, ready to get into your ear holes. You can also visit our site for any deals we see that are books that we have talked about on previous episodes or that Sarah and I have really loved. So again, if you're using a smart podcast app, you can click the link right now on your app and that'll take you directly to chirp.fatedmates.net so you can get started listening. And other than that, you can find this information and information on all of our sponsors in show notes. Thanks to Chirp for sponsoring the show. I'm really interested in this. So you, when you talk about writing, coming to writing, you you talk about it so personally that I mean, and obviously it's personal for all of us. But in your case, you really were using writing as a safe space, mm-hmm. and I think there's something something there that you were writing romance in in this for yourself in this safe space and a genre that is you know coded for joy and happiness and comfort mm-hmm. at the end of it. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about. Um, how I so that's the personal piece, but were do you what do you ever think about your writing and and maybe not, but do you think about your writing ever in terms of what you're intending to do for the reader? What do you some of some of the people we've talked to have said, oh, I never think about the reader when I'm writing. Do you what's the relationship with readers in your mind when you're writing? I definitely think about the reader. Uh, it's a conversation of of which I only hear one half <laughs> of it. Um, 
But I definitely think, and not any specific readers, of course, but yeah, there is someone I'm talking to. My my sister uh, brought, you know, she we my sister and I discussed writing all the time as well, uh, you know, the ideal reader kind of thing. You know, I am talking to sort of my ideal reader and they talk back and, and they've shaped me. And who um, is that? What What does that reader look like? It's a... I guess a nebulous concept, and I will I will say this. I don't do it anymore just because of time, and now I have enough reviews that I can't have read every one anymore. But I read I read every single review, oh or I used to. <laughs> it's very brave. <laughs> well, well, again, like I said, I I was teaching chemistry in in a low performing district, so and I was being told to like f off by students that I loved, you know, by like I've right. been told to f off by people that I love today. There's nothing that agent can tell me. There's nothing that reader can tell me that's going to hurt worse. Oh. Um, Thickest plus, of skins, you know, yeah. Plus a little bit of a stereotype, but you know, I'm like. I had an Asian tiger mom, so I mean, <laughs> you, you needed can't to know hurt what everybody me. was saying. That's fine. Yeah, you 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 can't touch me. I mean, come <laughs> on, you just don't like my book. You know? <laughs> so, did you hear though per- personally from readers that they were moved by your books? I mean, I assume. I mean, or was it mostly just through like you know, kind of the yes. filter of blogs or Goodreads or whatever. I hear personally too. I hear personally too. And I really like how um, some of the reviews of my books are very, very geeky academic, which is what I like. <laughs> uh, I like that. Um, and so I hear those too. I read it and it becomes all put into this ball of, you know, the, 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 the ideal reader is this nebulous ball of all of the collections I've put together of what people have said reacted my own reactions too like there's the reader you know there's the reader half of your brain that read your book and (laughs) there's the reader the writer half of your brain that wrote your book right um and all of that is kind of a nebulous concept and I I I can't I exactly identify it but I do kind of write something and be like oh this is pushing the boundaries you know my my ideal reader has not seen this before or has seen this before or how uh, you know, how this is the next step and where I want to take them and myself and things like that. So um, I love yeah, that. It, it is conversation. I love that idea. One of the things I like the most when I'm writing is that moment where you think to yourself like, oh, I'm doing something new. This is something that mm-hmm. I can feel it stretching in my brain. And I know readers will also be curious about where I'm going. Um, so it's always nice to hear that um, that other writers are are also kind of thinking yeah. about it that way. You know, and we do don't you, know if we're right. Sometimes you like fuss yeah. with the ideal reader. You know, how do you challenge yeah. them? And so we, you know, it keeps you from just talking to yourself <laughs> <laughs> and, and being too self-indulgent, right? But at the same time, it's a guess because then you'll like, you'll you'll release the book and then you'll get feedback. You're like, I was wrong about that yeah. one. <laughs> oh, that was a misstep. <laughs> that didn't well, work well. That's a, yeah, it's so interesting. And I think in genre, like, especially in genre fiction, right? Like, because the boundaries seem so, I mean, I'm really curious about, like, how romance changes over time. Because, of course, I have, like, my very strong opinions about how things should be right now. And then you go back 10 years or 20 years and think, oh, no, things are always changing. But, you know, we're just kind of where we are now. So is this something where, you know, when you look back on, I mean, you've talked a little bit about how publishing maybe has at least stated that they're more open to different kinds of stories. But, like, as a romance reader and writer, do you think that 
romance has changed or can you speculate about where you think we're going? Oh, romance is probably the fastest to change. It's the most reactive, I think, of all all the genres. Um, One, because we write so fast. (laughs) We as a collective, I myself do not write that fast, but we write so fast. (laughs) So we have the ability. And it's not, you know, people say, well, people will speak negatively about writing to market, but it's not so cut and dry. It's a conversation. Like a romance as a genre is more of a conversation because it moves so fast and so fluidly and so many people do it. Um, It's hard to put your finger on it because it's, you know, again, that giant nebulous ball of all the different people who write, you know, there are people who are writing throwbacks, like, like, you know, when you complain and they're like, Oh, romance is in the eighties. People don't write like that anymore. No, there are people still writing that. And there are people still reading that. Um, And people still writing it well and reading it well, you know, uh, and things like that. But okay. So trying to focus myself in, um, how has it changed? I would just say for, I'm going to try to narrow the conversation. Um, when Butterfly Swords was published, mm-hmm. it, it felt so different to a lot of people. Um, and so much so that like people who were writing things that were not at all close to Butterfly Swords gravitated toward it because it, they just said, this just looks different. This means there was a ball of different, right? Um, all the different books are not alike. <laughs> um, but still, there was just, there seemed to be this line of like, oh, this is what's accepted and your book is different. And so people are like, now you've opened the door to different books. I'm like, how? It's like, <laughs> right. it's like this one little small example. There's not like this, but it really was othered, I guess, for better or for worse. It was like this idea of like accepted and othered. And I was other. Um, I think that, there are still books that are other, but I think it's open so much more. Um, and definitely, you know, self-publishing, indie publishing has a big part to do in that. Um, and writing directly to the readers, you know, and, and, and not kind of, kind of going through the filters as much. And just the why, like opening the fire hose, like, oh, you, you have this fire hose. Now, before romance was already varied, that's why I always felt, I'm like, if any place is going to accept me, it's going to be romance. I always thought that starting in because, you know, there and, and the criticisms about romance being, you know, narrow or exclusive, they are not incorrect either, right? Both things can be true. That romance romance in 2010, I felt was going to be accepting and inclusive in some ways. And the community was definitely accepting, right? Because I felt folded in by the community. Um, and not all authors of color have felt that way. So I'm, I don't want to discount their experiences either. But I felt, you know, welcomed in many ways. Um, my book eventually, even though it was like, oh, you are, you are a little, you know, our little diversity poster girl, but it was still accepted in some ways, but it was still othered. Um, I think now a lot more variety. I love, I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, people say that you wrote the book that you wanted to read kind of thing. It's like, yeah, but now there are books that I do want to read (laughs) that people are writing. Uh, and so I want to read those, um, in, you know, in, in, Romances with characters of color, for sure. Still not a lot, right? The diversity report that the the Rip Bodice comes out with shows you at least what's being published traditionally. Especially here in historical. Tiny. I mean, yeah, tiny, real. tiny. But still, when it was one or two or three people writing historical um, characters of color, and now there's, you know, 20, that's like a huge increase. <laughs> you know, it's still not a lot, but it's a huge increase. 
Um, so definitely a lot more variety and I think a lot more discussion. I think there were times before when we'd have a discussion and people would be like, oh, you shouldn't criticize, you know, or things like that. Like you would kind of um, hear this because it was a fragile space where we were getting criticized by so many other genres. You're like, let's not infight. And, you know, now it's like, yes, some infighting is actually healthy. You, you, you know, the gag rules are off and things like that. So, um, and then a lot less limitations. Like, oh my gosh, in 2010, people were saying things like, you know, um, a lot of things, uh, baseball romances wouldn't sell, like, you know, not to minimize the the fact that characters of color that's a big that's a much different issue people saying characters of color wouldn't sell than like baseball wouldn't sell but still there were a lot more limits in those ways too because shelf space was limited and things like that but you know anyways that's kind of a rambly answer no but. that's it's i think it's interesting because one of the things i think i've come to believe is that like okay i'm going to explain my like romance is a volcano metaphor because I think what it is is like under the surface right like a big like actual volcano that looks like Mount St. Helens or whatever right and then like a path opens up like right a lava flow and then everyone's like oh look here's the path for us so Mm -hmm. like and the people who can blaze those trails like literally that's why you're here but I mean it's like showing readers and other writers both that there was some kind of way forward Right. It's not just like one. And yeah, sure. There's still one big mass moving down the mountain. That's like, you know, Regencies Mm -hmm. or whatever, but that there's lots and that readers, I think one of the things I appreciate is I think so many readers are like, I love this author and now I will write anything she writes. And Mm -hmm. so there's like a real commitment, I think, in romance readers to our favorite authors, too. I don't know. We've talked about this on the podcast, too, but 2010 is a really interesting year for me. You know, Jen and I have spent a lot of time over Fate of Mates kind of talking about, oh, where are the where are the marker years for the genre? And, you know, it's all kind of, I mean, who knows? We're basically making it up as we go. But yeah. 2010 is really interesting to me because I started writing romance in 2010, too. We, and the, um, I always say, you know, it felt like the so in some ways, like there was a door slamming shut behind because, you know, my first John, my first contract didn't have ebooks in it, um, which mm. feels ancient, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, but I think that that time period, I mean, what what Butterfly Swords did in 2010 was open a path in the volcano to sort of you know combine all of our stories, you know, in a way that really felt like traditional publishing was massively shifting. It was, it had to be shifting to keep Mm. up. Um, And there was, 2010 really marks an an end in a lot of ways, in my mind, to what had been happening in traditional publishing romance before, because it was right as indie publishing was starting. It was sort of, Mm. we were just on the cusp of what was about to become like this massive world. And somehow those of us who were new in 2010 were all feeling that seismic shift and you were, you know, doing it in a really important way. Well, that, that's actually a, an excellent point because at that point, uh, you know, ebooks were, there was a, e-publishers, right? Plenty of them who have yeah. now, digital publishers who have now kind of gone by the wayside, but that was their, that was also their upswing. Um, my prequel novella, the Taming of Mei Lin, which was attached to Butterfly Swords, that was that came out in, in ebook, and that was when people were playing with shorter length historical fiction in ebooks. 
a bunch of readers were like, I've never read an ebook before, but I want to read your want book. Read How this. do I get it? Like, I remember, I remember like on my blog, like, Posting instructions on how do you buy <laughs> an you ebook and how do you read? Yeah, yeah. How do you read the computer. Taming of Mei Lin? Here are your options. Like I remember doing that. Thank you yeah. for that, that reminder. Funny? I mean, doesn't it make Twitter, you feel ancient? You're welcome. <laughs> Twitter just Twitter. Yeah. Twitter was coming out like like at, at 2010 was when people were just starting to try to figure out Twitter and there weren't too many, you know, entities on there and it wasn't yeah. as cluttered. And, and, you know, I, I think what happened with Butterfly Swords is because Butterfly Swords was coming out and Twitter was there, like it kind of got swept up in a lot of just good reads. Oh my gosh, you're bringing back all right? these memories. Good right. reads <laughs> came They're, out yeah. at that time. And good reads wasn't owned by Amazon. Like it was just its own what? little like Right. Yeah. Community it's like, of, like oh, this site of yeah, <laughs> this site of books is starting up. It's called Goodreads. Um, oh yeah. Because I remember at the time, because Butterflies Swords was coming out at that time, because people were talking about it, it got swept up into a lot of these early proto algorithm type things. Um, you know, I got some sort of a feature in Goodreads that I didn't even know about, and I know Harlequin didn't buy because. Because no one knew about this stuff right, right then, right? right. Yeah, no one right. was paying um, money to websites. Yeah. Why would you <laughs> right. just throw your money away? And so people people are like, how did you get that in Goodreads? You know, and I was like, I don't have the yeah. faintest idea, you know. And that was also the age of like, there were two romance blogs and that was it. And yeah. if you got mm-hmm. reviewed by either of them, you could sell books. I mean, it just was a totally was different a, world. Yeah, a different world, different world. But yeah, on the cusp of change and we could feel it within what within the year borders would go away exactly. right mm-hmm. within the next year you know so so it was like um and right. yeah you're right if you were publishing at the time you were like right you were standing on the edge of the you know the and fault the line precipice, yeah yeah and you as sort it of like, felt like split what is happening and the people it was a volcano everybody <laughs> oh yeah volcano sorry volcano sorry. <laughs> were publishing before us for many years were like what is even happening this is totally mm-hmm. new and I'm not going to survive and the people who were coming in right after were saying you know oh all of that stuff is yeah. you know old news and it yeah. it's really a fascinating it was a fascinating time but you're it right is. you've just named a bunch of things I had forgotten about <laughs> one of the questions and you've already mentioned quite a quite a few of this but one of the questions we also are just really curious about is um you know, you've already mentioned some folks, but like, who are, are there other lesser known people, like names people wouldn't know, editors, designers, publishers, other authors that really, like you think have left a mark on the genre that you don't think are celebrated as often? This is tough because everyone I name is is way more well-known than me, I guess, <laughs> I think. Um, but uh, I think, the first person who comes to mind is Eden Bradley, who is, uh, she has a couple of pen names, but Eden Bradley, and she writes erotic romance. Mm-hmm. And she was writing erotic romance sort of, you know, when when that was making, a, you right. know, w- was coming up. And she also was one of the co-moderators or, you know, co- co-foundational members, not founders of a, of a group called Romance Divas. Oh, um, sure. See, I don't which know was this. Where, yeah. Which was where, and they're still around, but they've gone through, you know, ebbs and flows as well. But that's where I sort of, cre- where I found my first online writing community was, it was a romance blog, divas. right? 
You no, were, it was a forum. It was oh, a forum. forum. They had a blog, but it was a forum where we would go and ask for advice. And there was a lot of e ebook e publishing. You know, at a time when e publishing was kind of like considered the lower, you know, the lower tier. Everyone's trying to get a publishing, you know, a, a right. traditional contract, and and so they were really there leading kind of like through the changes where a lot of discussion was happening. And so it's a private forum, but you know, you can, you can join it. It wasn't so restrictive, but Eden was there. But I think as an author also for me, um, she really exemplified, you know, someone who was writing her own thing, trying to move with the changes. Um, I actually got my call when I was in Eden's room and at RWA when, when I got the call, cause she was leading us through a yoga session, <laughs> but Wait, I think we should explain just, what that means. What does it mean to get the call? Jean? Oh, the call. Okay. So the call is when, <laughs> you know, we, we had been in discussions and different people were rejecting, but the call is when you finally get the call from an editor at a public or, or an acquisitions person, I guess, an editor at a publishing house saying, we would like to publish your book. <laughs> so it was the moment, you know, and they called from England, <laughs> they called from the UK uh, to, to say that we want to publish Butterfly Swords. And I was waiting, you know, we, I had a feeling, you know, we had already said it's going to happen, but this was when they actually called and said, welcome to Harlequin Mills and Boone. And, you know, so many things are going to happen today and, you know, and all this and you'll get a contract later. And But it was when I spoke to, uh, it, it was Linda, Linda Fildu at the time and, and just welcoming me to the publishing world. Um, but I was waiting, I was in a room at R- RWA doing yoga with Eden. Um, <laughs> but I was... I, I, I and some it. other people. Everybody knows I where they it. were. No one ever forgets where they were. Then when they exactly, exactly. They like marched me downstairs to get my first time sale ribbon. It was it was a moment. Oh, it was that's a moment. So fun. But I was with. But that's what I was saying. It was always been about a community for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Eden kind of exemplifies. She was a person who is a fabulous author. I love her books. It's like her books unfold like a dream. Her voice is so amazing. Do you um, have a recommendation for our listeners? To start with Eden? Uh, I think it was called The Dark Garden. It was her first book. And when I read it, I kind of was just, I was not an erotic romance reader at that time. And I just like was swept away with it. And I would read, like, it's one, she has one of those voices where I would read her, you know, I would read the phone book kind of thing if she wrote it. And, um, but on top of that, the community building that she does, um, and then she's just so caring and then on top of that, um, so erotic romance has gone up and down, but, you know, so she's kind of weathered a lot of different storms. You know, all of a sudden with Fifty Shades, she kind of shot up again because her book was, you know, one right. of these early books in erotic romance. But um, she just shows me how to handle things with grace, you know, and, and so she's really been an influence um, on top of being a fabulous author. And I remember I was at one of her signings before I was published and she it was a book uh, publisher signing. And she was talking, interacting with readers, and she just was recommending other books. Like, she wasn't talking about her books. She was like, oh, over there, have you read her books? They're fabulous. And she was just so giving and gracious. And I was like, I want to be like Eden when I grow up. So I think, <laughs> you know, she she's done a lot for other authors and done a lot for erotic romance, done a lot for e-publishing that I think it's just not recognized because she just, it's just naturally, you know, kind of, you know, and, and done a lot for, I think, you know, body positivity, sex positivity, just there's a lot 
so much that in her. Um, now I feel embarrassed because now Eden's like, oh, you never no. told me these things. Well, now <laughs> you know what? You've done it the best possible way. It is the best possible way. <laughs> I mean, I think it is hard. I think we're so used to like quietly just like knowing the people that influenced us. But I love hearing, I love hearing, when we've asked people this question, it has always been, I think, just so like really rewarding to hear about like there's so many close ties and so many ways in which we like really can admire the authors who have done this work before us. So, And one of the things that we keep coming back to this season is that nobody, you know, or largely the names of these people are not spoken um, because we don't get as much public coverage as lots of other genres. So, And then, you know, along the same lines, I think Kate Pierce uh, has been a similar force for me. And and um, like I said, these, these authors are way bigger, way more well-known <laughs> than I am, but more should be said about them. My, my question at this point is, um, well, let's talk, go back to your books because you, we've talked so much about Butterfly Swords, but let's talk about sort of the, the larger Jeannie Lynn collection. Um, can you talk a little bit about the shifts that you made over your career, the choices to move? Mm-hmm. Fluid, you really ride the genre lines very fluidly. So um, can you talk about that a little? Um, I well, Butterfly Swords, I feel, was very tropey, right? It was, it was, I think that's one of the reasons it was picked up. There was something very familiar about it and, you know, different but the same is what everyone always said, right, was the selling point. Um, but after Butterfly Swords and I started working with Mills and Boone, I think I really leaned into the Chinese culture and history side a lot more. And so my book started veering, you know, even from the second book that I published, uh, The Dragon and the Pearl, and the third, My Fair Concubine, they start going into much more of a a, a shift into, you know, Chinese cultural romances. Um, And then I think the biggest change was uh, at the time when um, my editor, uh, I think I said her name before, Anna Boatman, she was just so intensely, she was so supportive. She's I, my I think that's editor a, at Piak Kiss, too. Oh, Anna. is she? Yeah. I, oh, awesome. I mean, awesome. we'll take this out. It's whatever. Now we can just say she's the best. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> she. I mean, she She almost, I mean, she taught me how to write, right, in a way. She taught she's me how to write amazing. with an editor mm-hmm. because we grew up together. She was, you know. I don't think I ever realized that you were edited by, maybe we won't take this out, but I don't think I ever realized that you were edited by the English, by England, oh, um, instead yeah, of the yeah. United States. It's actually great working with them because their five-page revision letters are so polite. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, but so Anna, Anna Boatman, when she also, be, you know, as, as your editor moves up, this is one of the things people don't realize, right? As your editor moves up through the ranks, in, in the publishing house that could affect you. And so when she moved into single title, she was like, I know who would write great single title books like Jeannie Lynn. And that was, that was offered to me without, I, I, we did not submit for that. That was just given to me. It kind of fell in my lap. And so is that, that point, the gunpowder like, chronicles then? No, this oh. was Lotus Palace series. Oh, the Lotus Palace series. Okay. Yeah. It's like I always had in my mind, like, yes, I would like to write single title because I was already writing longer length. And uh, that's what I always thought we would, you know, my agent was like, I always thought we would be single title authors. Uh, again, for the listening audience, you know, the category is similar to 
categories. They usually fit certain guidelines. They're usually shorter. They were releasing every month, things like that. Single titles stay on the shelf a little longer. They're usually longer in length. Um, And so when that happened, you know, and it was the opportunity to write a deeper story, uh, more in depth. Um, Not that I thought my stories were, you know, super shallow or anything, but just to go a little deeper into the things I wanted to do and um, hit on topics that I hadn't before. You know, in, in the Lotus Palace series, there's you know the sex trade, there's gambling addiction, which is actually something that's prevalent in my family um, and, and, and in, in Vietnamese culture, you know, um, and things like that. And so it, it sort of gave me an opportunity to play around a little bit more um, with the single titles. And uh, I think that was kind of the big, the first big shift I felt was, was writing the Lotus Palace series. Um, the Gunpowder Chronicles was was also at the same time another shift is is uh, someone steampunk is one of those things where everyone was hoping it would be big thought it would be big the fans really like it but it sort of has always been it's one of those things that I think doesn't work if it's popular <laughs> unfortunately you, you kind of geek culture likes fringe culture as well mm-hmm. and it is really popular but not popular in you know in the, in the same way. way. That, yeah, in, in a mainstream way. Um, but at some point, I, I really liked kind of the geekiness of steampunk and cosplay. And someone suggested, why don't you write steampunk? And I was like, no, I, I don't think that way. I'm, I'm like, a, you know, but the more I researched it, it was like, hey, it's not that far of a leap. And no. it kind of plays into the science geekiness, history, history geekiness that I have. I was like, let's do it, you know. And uh, again, I, I knew no better. I didn't know any better. And so that was... At the same time I, um, you know, was branching out to the Lois Palace, I also started branching out into steampunk fantasy. And um, I think each of them, they don't feel too far away from where I started, but they're just different ways to explore aspects of psychology and culture and, and history in different ways. So which of your books do you hear about the most from readers? I'd probably say... Um, it's a hard call. Which it's good that it's a hard call, that it's not right. a definite <laughs> answer. <laughs> some people, I mean, this question is really fascinating to me because, you know, some people instantly, there's like the book yeah. that they hear about. I think, well, Butterfly Swords still, which is amazing to me. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing. It's a book that was literally on the shelves for a month right. in bookstores at a time when ebooks were not huge, you know, and things like that. And it's it's never had a book bub. It's never, you know, it's never really had a breakthrough other than it being Butterfly Swords and people didn't write books like that then. Or, or no, no, they were, correction, they were writing books like that. Traditional publishers weren't publishing romances like that then. Um, and so Butterfly Swords for sure, but My Fair Concubine, surprisingly, is a sleeper that gets mentioned a lot. Like when people say the books that they reread, yeah. uh, it's My Fair Concubine. Um, and then The Lotus Palace gets gets mentioned as well. So I would say those three are the ones I, I hear from readers most often or I see mentions. Yes, I Google stock myself occasionally. <laughs> we okay. all do well, we've it. we've decided it. that you have thick skin. <laughs> <laughs> you like the war, the battle. I like the pain. It feels like it feels like love to me. Yeah, I always say that. I'm like it, Asian. You know, Asians don't call it tough love. We just call it love. That's what love is. Perfect. Is there a book of yours that 
you are most proud of or that we ask a sort of frame it as like that you hope would outlive you? Oh, I, you know, at this point, I would still have to say butterfly swords. Um, and the reason why is this, it's taken a long journey, I think, for me to kind of come back to the, to the acceptance of butterfly swords. A long time, every time someone said like, oh, I'm reading Butterfly Swords, and it was like five years after it was written. It was seven years after it was written. I would, I would cringe. I'm like, oh, it's so bad. <laughs> Don't start with that one. <laughs> you know, but I wouldn't say anything. Oh, great, I'm glad. Please enjoy. <laughs> Please you know. enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be over here in the corner. <laughs> well, and also, there's also that feeling of like, I've done a lot more than that one. Yes, I'm a better writer <laughs> like, now. What, did I peak I've, with number one? <laughs> I've learned so much. But, you know, I'm like, I, I bite my tongue. And I realize, like, readers don't know that. Every book they come to is the first. And, of course, it's 10 right. years ago. 10 years in historical romance is like. Sure. Oh, thousand years. Uh, so much changes. So it's much a changes. itself, right? Yeah. But, but still, I, I've come back to the, you know, like, like there's still things that people are finding that they like about it. So that's been reassuring, but also it was a time it was, it, 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 it was I was in a place then, but uh, Jennifer Lynn Barnes has a talk about writing for your id. Mm-hmm. Great. We've talked talk. about it. Sarah, yeah. Oh, yes. Sarah loves it. I oh love gosh. it. I think it was the most inspirational thing for me to read craft wise and, and emotional, you know, like, like why. So, because it made me accept. I'm like, there are things that people love and this is why. And the things that I hate about it, I don't really hate. I just feel like I'm better than that now, but I don't have to be, you know? Right. I, it made me feel okay about the things I loved that I put into the kitchen sink of a romance that I wrote, well, you know? Jen, um, Jen always talks about first books. The reason why first books resonate so well with readers, especially when you're like you are, where you grew up reading romance, Um is you you pack them full of all the things that's, that all the buttons that were installed <laughs> in you. <laughs> but I think there's a raw. I haven't reread it in a long time. In fact, this is how crazy I am. There is a word echo on the first page of Butterfly Sword, <laughs> and I swear, for the last ten years, I'm like, if I ever get that book back, that is the first thing I'm fixing. <laughs> um, that's, that's how so psycho funny. I am about that book. Can I tell book. you something, Jeannie? You could ask them to change it in the ebook right now, and they would. So, no, that would open up a can of worms. No, no, don't read the whole book. Just have them fix that one. (laughs) No, but that would open up. That would open up a whole. Oh my gosh, that would just no, no. Take it back. my, My first words. My first words when, you know, when, when Butterfly Swords arrived, here's why I say Butterfly Swords. There's so much emotion, as you can hear, when I'm talking about yeah. it now. And I think some of that raw emotion is in the pages. And yes. so I would say that's yeah. the book I would I would say. It's your baby. It's your first baby. And I want people, I want people in 20 years to complain about how, like, tropey and stereotypical it is and how, yeah. how derivative. I want people to say those things because... <laughs> It's a 20-year-old 20, 20 book. Complain about it. Yeah. Say how outdated it is. Yes, <laughs> right. Well, and we've talked about that. Like, sometimes when we go back and read 
a, like an older historical, I was like, oh, this is where this originated. So if mm-hmm. people were saying that about a butterfly swords, it would mean that. But you're a critical reader. People yeah. people might just pick it up and be like, who is yeah. this old, you know, <laughs> writing these stereotypes? Listen, and, if people are still yeah. reading your book 20 years after it comes out, that's a win no matter win. what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. Put me on blast. And exactly. I, I kind of, I kind of, you know, I'm like, I haven't, there's nothing I haven't blasted about myself about that book. But the very, the very first time I held that book in my hands, you know, I saw that UPS truck, I was waiting for it. The UPS truck was across the street and I'm like, it's across the street. And I, I'm saying this on Twitter because there was this new thing called Twitter then. <laughs> so, and all, you know, readers and 12 also people fellow, were watching. Yeah. But my, my 12 followers were like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, is it the books? Is it the books? And so the books come to the door and I open it up and I pick it up. And my husband can attest to this. The first thing I say is like, oh, I have a book. Now I can't fix it anymore because I had it in paper. <laughs> there was no more. I couldn't fix it. So yeah, I can't. I I can't if I I can't open it up and ask Harlequin to fix that because that would ruin me. I'd do nothing else. So we've talked about how fast changing romance is. And one of the things that's been really interesting as we've done these interviews to me is I find myself more and more grateful for ebooks because your book that your book that was on the shelf for one month is still available to be on all of our shelves right yes yes love that yeah we're lucky and i have like a couple dusty copies in my basement for my children (laughs) you can put them on ebay maybe if you ever (laughs) um Jeannie, thank you so much for being with us today it was an amazing amazing to hear your story a really fabulous conversation thank you oh this is really fun this is great well now i sort of while you were talking about steampunk i was like i wonder if Jeannie would come back and do an interstitial on steampunk with us because (laughs) um, put it on the list if you're a steampunk reader Jeannie, and you'd like to join us to talk about that that would be really fun oh yeah anytime anytime Jeannie, tell everybody where they can find you I'm here and there on Twitter at just Jeannie Lynn, uh, J-E-A-N-N-I-E-L-I-N. Um, and then my website is uh, com. And I'm, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm in and out. I, I don't have any policy for social media. I kind of just do it as I feel. So you may get me. You may get me a lot or a little. It's social media. Right, that's how it works. <laughs> and tell us about what's uh, recent or what's coming. Oh well, I am, I am, oh, I'm working on a book right now, and like every book, you hope it's going to be the last one, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on the sequel um, or the next book in the Lotus Palace series right now, and it's um, it's the follow up to the Hidden Moon, which came out last year, and I'm also. Uh, uh, I actually started an MFA program, and so I'm working on a historical that's set in Vietnam. And that's a scary one for me just because, uh, first of all, a whole new historical era, and one that's not as well-documented because it's actually ancient. It's it's AD, 40 AD. Oh, wow. Uh, and set, uh, it's it's the story of the Trung sisters, who were the, revolu- the revolutionary uh, sisters of Vietnam who fought for independence against Han China wow. and they actually won. So they're sort of like the, the Vietnamese version of William Wallace or, or you know, mm-hmm. they, they actually won back their independence for a glorious three years. But, you know, hey. um, it was the first time that 
Vietnam defeated China for independence, and it was two sisters who did it. So that's those are my two current projects. Uh, the sisters one's going to take a while because it's a whole new historical era. Yeah. Um, and then hopefully the uh, the next Lotus Palace book will be finishing up, you know, within the year. But you can uh, catch up with the Lotus Palace series while you're yeah. waiting for that, and you can buy those wherever you buy your books. So Jeannie, thank you so much for coming to Fade of Mates. And Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what a cool person. Yeah. I don't think I've ever met her in real life, and now I just want to be her friend forever. Obviously. I would have been really lucky. I have had her on at least one, maybe two panels. You know, in our Zoom world, it's so much easier to just, like, reach out to someone and be like, hey, do you want to do this thing? And um, she, yeah, she's been She's great. <laughs> yeah. I love I really loved I mean I love I loved a lot about that conversation. One of the things I like the most is how um and we don't really talk about this very much, even though it is the origin story for so many writers, is this idea that you come to romance for the joy of it for yourself, to come to writing it. Um, and when she said, you know, she had come up right reading her best friend mom, her best friend's mom's, mom's historicals, it made sense to me. I mean, you can yes. really see the bones of that in her books. Um, but the real joy of that for me was her saying, "I was having a rough time, and writing romance saved me, saved my sanity in some ways." I also thought it was really interesting. I think she's the first person we've talked to um, so far that has talked about, like, like taking a class, right? Like, that You're there's... Learning the and, craft. Right, learning the craft. And that I think that so, you know, there's so many different paths to writing romance that we're hearing about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from fan fiction to, you know, to... And, and so to have someone say, like, you know, I kind of went the, uh, like, a more traditional route, and that's what worked for me, because it might inspire people who, you know, I think a lot of people probably recognize themselves in that, like, I like feedback, and I like a, a teacher, and I like this idea of someone else has done it. I don't have to learn it myself. So I was really fascinated to hear, like, just like, yeah, this UCLA extension course. <laughs> Amazing. I wish I had had a course like that. I had a very different kind of course that didn't inspire me the way that she did. I really had a false start with one. So that sounds like a good one. I also liked, um, you know, writer, I, I liked when she talked about romance being so, so fast to change. And when we really dug into that, the last decade mm-hmm. or so of romance, yes. she really had a fascinating perspective that we haven't had before with other, so far, I mean, mm-hmm. we're not done recording trailblazer interviews but um it was it was really interesting to hear from somebody who has a perspective that's a shorter a a mid-range lens it feels like in some ways you and i have talked before about like 2010 right but to have i don't think i'd put together genie lynn with 2010 and Mm -hmm. yet you know looking back i think we are going to keep coming across like those years that just seem to be like 1995, yeah. right? Like the years where yeah, they're just transformational years. Right. And so I was really fascinated to have somebody kind of remind us 
of like just how big that change was to ebooks, but also like that social media, the blogs, like the sort of the way that all yeah, just played into shifting. it as well. Right. It feels now it feels like that that has all existed for as long as we've all been alive. But that those of us who started writing right on that cusp, um, it's it's really huge the the amount of change that has happened. Um, and as she was talking, I actually had some other thoughts of people who we need to make sure we put on our trailblazer list because, you know, there are just every time we have one of these conversations, I think, oh, we need to make sure we get that person. So we're going to be doing trailblazers interviews until we're 95. And then we then someone can come in. <laughs> We've recorded it all already, though. <laughs> one of the things that I um, I was thinking about a lot, too, though, is and you talked about this like sort of luck. But, you know, how much hard work is involved? I think I, I would like to say there are very few writing, it seems, you know, to to say to yourself, like, I'm going to go ahead and sign up for 100 rejections. Unbelievable, by that the That that's, way. like, I the really number would. I can bear. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> right? I would have tolerated, like, six, and then <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> And I think that that's part of the thing, too, is not just to say, I, I mean, I, I want to be really explicit, like, all writers go through rejections, but I think it's also really clear that she was fighting a, a real uphill battle. She oh, was bringing sure. something to market that people thought they didn't want, that they explicitly would say, we don't want or we're not going to publish. And so the way that the, that you know, kind of the racism embedded or, you know, into the, the genre, into publishing itself um, works against authors, certainly, but also readers who then, mm-hmm. when her book did come to market, were, you know, like to have a category romance have a a decade-long impact. I don't – I want to talk about that because it is. I hadn't realized, and I said this with her, but I hadn't realized so much about Jeannie's career really did travel a unique path Um from mm-hmm. I mean, she mentioned the category romance being it shouldn't be a cat. It doesn't it defies the rules of category, um, but it defies the rules of American category. And then she was picked up by British category. She, her editor is British, not American. I mean, these are the paths that so many of the trailblazers. I mean, we've taught we talked to Radcliffe. You you know, her episode is out. These trail so many of these trailblazing um people have tell stories about finding a path through the woods that yes. is uncommon. Um, which I guess is the point of <laughs> yeah, trailblazing. Exactly. I was like, I I believe <laughs> Sarah Wait a second. You hit upon our thesis. Look what we've done. <laughs> And you know what? That's not to say that there aren't people doing interesting work who are traveling down paths that have been created for them. But, you know, I think the thing that is so interesting, too, is to hear how all those little things that align bring us bring us the books that we now have. Yeah. And it is it's, you know, 80 percent hard work and a great book and 20 percent just the right person picking it up at the right time. And also, you know, it's really interesting. I don't think readers, um, maybe our listeners aren't, the the golden heart in recent years has felt 
a little bit like a I don't know I don't understand why this thing exists. No right every writer could publish themselves. Yeah. And so to ha- to talk and hear a Golden Heart winner talk about the power of that contest, yeah. um, I thought and was I th- also really interesting. I agree, and I think. That especially, you know, RWA is so tricky and we've talked about it before and, and, you know, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on RWA because why? But I think that the one, the, there was so much discussion when they ended the Golden Heart um, because it, it really did feel like for many of us, the Golden Heart was um, a support system, a network um, and those Golden Heart winners are all a part. W- one of the things we didn't talk about with Jeannie is, you know, they all had their they had their online private groups and they had their community of of finalists who supported each other. I mean, Joanna Shoup talks so much about that that the value of those people together and those writers who are all sort of traveling the same path together. Um, and when RWA gave did away with it, and you know, there was argument that they did away with it because it wasn't making enough money. It was too much work for however for the people submitting to it because of independent publishing. People were fewer and fewer people were submitting to it. And that's all real. Um, but there also is a value to unpublished authors being celebrated for their work. Um, you know, yesterday I was at a play date with my daughter and I met a mom I haven't I had never met before and you know we got to talking and she said, "Oh, you're a writer." And I said, "Yes." I said, "What do you do?" She said, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom, but um, you know, I'm I've been I'm trying to be a writer. I've been writing for, you know, she said she'd been writing the same thing for 5 years." She's like, "But I try to write every, you know, every day or every couple of days." And I said, "Well, then you're a writer." I mean, it's a it, there is a value to supportive communities around unpublished authors. And there's a value to us naming writing as a as something valuable, as a valuable product, even if you don't get paid for it. So I, I really love that. I, I mean, you know, we're, and that's, as we do these interviews, we're going to come up with more and more of these like little pockets of romance history that... Yeah. We'll try to unpack and explain. Right. Well, and the thing that's amazing is the more we do it, the more I realize just how many pockets there are, right? I mean, we all have our romance reading experience, but it's also like, you know, finding these other ones. So, yeah. So um, as you're listening, if there are ever, to that end, if there are ever things that we blow past and we don't talk about that you think are interesting, shoot us a a message on Twitter or Instagram or send us an email and let us know and we'll do what we can to explain them. Okay. That was fun. It was fun. I enjoyed that one. I enjoy all of them now. Me too. It's amazing. It's the best. These are the best conversations. They are. Okay. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us. You can find us at Faded Mates Pod on Instagram, at Faded Mates on Twitter, uh, at FadedMates.net to find all of these and merch and uh, stickers and information and, you know, everything you could possibly need um, about us more than you could ever want. <laughs> We're generating a lot of content. That's what um, Sarah's trying to say. But we really love you all. We hope you are all reading great books this week. And- And um, thanks for listening. 